0: Hey William. Hey, Patty. Welcome to part two of the podcast where we talk about art fairs and all the various fairs that we saw, which were so many that we couldn't fit them all into one episode.
1: Absolutely. And you went to some more fairs than I did. I really only had Nada and Freeze in me, but I did get to see a couple of gallery shows that uh, I want to talk about.
0: Yeah, so we'll be adding that plus a plus a mini discussion on kitsch. <laughs> so I think I wanted to start with the independent fair because that went on at the same time as Nada. That was in the early burst of fairs and. Earlier in the previous podcast, I identified a flaccid penis trend that that did continue at the uh, independent. There was like one of the first things I saw was a watercolor of a pantless man playing basketball in his living room. But it was also like that flaccid penis trend was also bucked at the independent because the first floor included a number of shots of erect penises. Pushed inside various assholes. And of all of those, like I thought, I don't know how to say her name, but Olivia Revey, she had a like photograph of a man standing in a doorway and his penis was completely erect and resembled a doorknob because the shot was like completely head-on. So all you could see was the head. And he was literally standing right beside a door. So it was sort of a playful take on like dicks and doorknobs and was kind of a a nice like visual pun. Upstairs, I thought the ranch was sort of noteworthy. They were showing surrealist paintings of cats by Renette Yes,
1: (laughs) Surrealist paintings? You don't say.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and they described her as the missing link between Lenora Carrington, Leonora Carrington and Lenora Finney. And I thought that was sort of worth mentioning just because those were both Latin American artists and Renette Drux wasn't working in Latin America. Like her friends were people like Kenneth Anger and, You do see that in this work, there's a kind of menace to the work, but it's also like really funny. So there's like one painting, there's like a picture of a white fluffy cat on a purple pillow. And then there's like a menacing gray cat in the background. (laughs) And the images do kind of look like you could imagine them adapted for like tarot cards or something like that. Mm. So I thought those were pretty good. But the main thing that, like, the main gallery that I had a lot to say about was, uh, and again, I think this is a Greek gallery. So the name of the gallery, my pronunciation will probably be pretty terrible, but it's uh, Alush Banas Gallery. And they showed Kenny Schachter the whole room in one of the upstairs spaces was taken up by Kenny's stuff. So he had covered a lot of it in wallpaper with that sad Mac icon that, used to, that was used to indicate like a serious hardware issue in the 90s. Do you remember oh, yeah. that icon?
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, it generally when you saw it, something was bad. Something was really wrong with the computer. You know, yeah. before the spinning wheel of death, you know, the spinning <laughs> rainbow wheel of death.
0: Exactly. So he's got like a whole wallpaper of that, just kind of like copy pasted stuff. And he made t shirts that he just gave away for free. So I have one of his that says Lookism that I actually wore on the workshop Instagram. And he sold catalogs for what I'm pretty sure was his NFT show at Nagel Drexler Gallery. So the aesthetic of this work was pretty interesting to me because I think he brings together the hacker versus default aesthetics that was defined pretty early on in the net art of the aughts. So for example, he uses sort of scrawl drawn Photoshop writing, like you'd see on hacker work on the walls of the gallery. And then he uses the default images of the Sad Mac and the wallpaper. But I think like his unique twist on this is that he has, he's also like, at least in the catalog, there's a kind of like Rachel Harrison found imagery thing going on as well. So like he has like a bunch of images in the catalog of various phrases and words that he's put in the alphabet soup. So he's got like NFTism in the alphabet soup. He also has another pun like meta data as in data the surrealist art movement not data and so i think there's kind of an eye at play there but also kenny like pretty much discovered harrison so there's like kind of a like a big lineage that plays out here i can see that your like interest though seems modest at best
1: (laughs) no you know it's not that I'm, i'm disinterested i just i've really known Kenny First as an art dealer and yeah. much less as an artist and through his writing over the last say decade it was really focused on his activities as a secondary market dealer and that this renewed practice that he has is so tied to the kind of emergence of NFTs that I'm a little suspect just but I did not go see the show so <laughs> I can't weigh in on the aesthetic merit but it definitely obviously sounds like it's tapping into your critical interests you know it it
0: definitely taps into the things that i'm interested in i will say that the catalog compares kenny schachter to duchamp or boys in that like he's a kind of (laughs) you all can't see this but like women (laughs) william is just like grimacing over here (laughs) But just the sense that he can't like the the person can't be distinguished from the various roles that he plays, like the mm. dealer, the writer, the curator, the teacher, and I would just say that I would suppose that that is something that I can identify with at least a little bit because I too have done so many different things that I think sometimes it's been like a little bit difficult for people and even myself to pin down what that identity is,
1: yeah, and compared to a lot of the nft work that is getting, you know, it's very popular, whether it's the Bored Apes or the Mutant Apes or the Shit Apes, whatever they are, Kenny comes across as like, he just stepped out of the Whitney ISP program. I mean, there's (laughs) infinitely (laughs) a lot more depth in history, even in just what you described than than what is passing for the uh, kind of dominant NFT aesthetics of collectible illustration or something. So, hats off to Kenny for at least doing something that uh, again, that also when you said it was independent, I was like seriously. One of the the things I read about independent was that it had a focus on photography or mid-century. I don't know. I read something that made me just not want to go to independent.
0: I mean, it only had a focus on photography in the sense that it was like compared to Nada, for example, for where there were like maybe three booths that had any photography at all, like the (laughs) independent had more. But like, this is not a real focus on photography. This is what somebody who's like totally steeped in art fairs thinks is a focus on photography.
1: Right. And is now concluding. (laughs) It's a possible theme, if you can find
0: it. But no, he. I mean, the whole setup of the booth was basically like a storefront for selling the crypto mutts NFTs, which are the randomly generated collectible NFTs that are generated via AI. And those crypto mutts, they're like just crudely drawn figures that I think sort of remind me a little bit of like, do you know LOL dolls for kids or LOL dolls for kids?
1: Uh, I can't picture one right now.
0: Well, they're... The big thing about them and this is always the thing with I think kids toys especially for girls is that they're all unique. Everyone is different in some way except they're all exactly the same with these like little variables. Yeah. And like I think and that that's kind of what like makes those LOL dolls collectible is that you don't know what you're getting when you get the package like and there's an element of surprise and then of course for our current time, like there's all sorts of unboxing videos and all sorts of crap like that. And this has a sort of, there's a sense of that too, in the sense that like the I guess I shouldn't, I guess I can't really say this like to an outsider like me, like though, it's hard to know, like what makes one crypto mutt more desirable than another right? Like they're all randomly
1: generated. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the Alfred Steiner, who's a friend of mine, has been doing these kind of like analyses of what are the sort of most unique permutations of like bored apes and all of these kind of variations. And the numbers are kind of staggering in terms of how many possible combinations there are, but My point is that there are people who are interested in that question of what makes one of these things more or less unique than another one in the NFT world. And that analysis is sort of happening. So we may have an answer. Maybe for LOL dolls, but (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of the same thing, you know, where we're talking about the same model.
0: Well, in any event, I think like Kenny is like to his credit like if you look at his discord he's got thousands of followers and he's like super generous to them like he's always talking to them he's invited like literally all of them to his house like like I've seen that I personally would be a little frightened to do something like that but he does feel at least based on what I've seen that he it does seem like he has a kind of kinship with the people that he has created a community for.
1: Uh, Well, you know, I just, I think I can't imagine a person better suited for this moment. I mean, Kenny, it's like it taps into all his skill sets of writing and dishing and selling, and he's been selling, but he's always had to sell to rich folks, right? So this opened it up to a whole new world of people that not everyone is, There's a whole new uh, class of crypto wealthy people, and Kenny is nothing if nothing but you know, like he's a super showman. Yeah, totally. He's a dealer, and I think that it's sort of um, an amazing moment for Kenny. But I also realize, I mean, there's so much marketing and sort of promotion that you know he's like a true believer in the space, with an awareness of I think the absurdity of some of it. But that's so. Trial balloon,
0: trial balloon here. Like feel free to shoot this down because I'm just thinking about it now. But like Gavin Brown, like a lot of the work that he launched with like Erz Fisher in the early early days and like that sort of thing. It seemed like he was kind of a producer of sorts, not quite a co-author, but like where it is, is there a relationship between the dealer, Gavin Brown, and Kenny Schachter?
1: The the dealer slash artists. I mean, I, I I certainly know that dealers to different degrees will have a strong influence on directions and things that artists produce. Because I, you know, I know Rickrit Vinage worked with Gavin Brown at some point, And I was always sort of surprised that there's an addition of like chrome-covered ping pong tables produced by Rickrit. Mm-hmm. And I would wonder if that is a co-production, say with Gavin, or at least coming out of those conversations. But Gavin was a kind of showman, but all that was in the service of his artists, where Kenny is just like incorporated the Gavin into his sort of artistic persona, which the difference for a lot of NFT artists, everyone has to get out there and kind of shill to use the term. Yeah,
0: no, that is exactly true.
1: Self-consciously and embracing that. And I think that's one of the things that is still... Part of the culture of like the visual arts that I experienced is that we're not there to kind of self promote our work in the same way, in that, that still has this kind of brings up some anxiety and sort of negative feelings. You know, well, I feel artist. like,
0: I mean, I feel like that's. Uh... Part of the root of the tension that many artists feel when they are on Instagram or like social media of any sort, where there's like the expectation that they're supposed to show their work itself. But there's, I mean,
1: there's a, a structural difference though in that I can go on Instagram, post some image of my work, doing some of the business of promoting it, but I'm not necessarily selling it directly to like the consumer. And a lot of the NFT, like the artist is the salesperson; they are their own. You know, sort of agent, and there's this sense of being like a kind of used car salesman on on the lot. You've got to not only do you have to promote and talk about your work and talk about how serious and interesting and engaging it is, you're also trying to sell it to somebody, and that is, you know, it's a it's a difference. Well,
0: I mean, I will say though that like some artists do sell on Instagram, and that is like that is their business. I think it's probably not the majority of people that we are connected with, but
1: yeah. And I mean, you know, again, some of that also happens sort of offline through DMs. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. Open C platform. Where <laughs> see all the that is a, that actually is, is a very good
0: distinction. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. no. There's just
1: a lot more transparency about it, which I yeah. think also can be sort of freeing for some artists because like we're doing it in public. You know, there's none of the opacity and secrecy of of the art world and your weird machinations going on.
0: It's true, but it's also like super addictive and like you spend time just watching the currency go up and down and like who's buying your work and all the other stuff. Like I think that also introduces a different kind of stress.
1: Mm, Yeah. I'm not dealing with that particular stress.
0: (laughs) (laughs) In any event, I didn't, I think neither one of us made the future fair, but I did want to mention it i mean again we talked about this last in the previous podcast like the monsoon type weather really did have an impact on like what you could legitimately see but the future fair like has a unique uh, fair model which i wanted to talk about because it distributes profits like 35% of the fair's profits with its dealers as a profit sharing program so i thought that was kind of good because like I think one thing that we have seen just as a sort of general, I don't know, I don't want to call it exactly a cultural trend, but it's like a, like a business structure that is somehow inherently lopsided, which is people who are landlords or like people who are are renting property to other people. Anytime you own those structures, you take in a lot more money than the people that, that are just renting from you. And so like anything that really distributes some of that wealth around, I think is uh, laudable.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. It reminded me of, there was a fair that was in Bushwick for like two years where might've been the reverse where the gal, like the, the fair shared some of the risk of the participating galleries in the sense that the fair only got paid if they took a cut of the sales that the galleries made. So if the galleries had sold no artwork, the fair would not really make any money Um, Mm. instead of kind of like pooling the profits and then redistributing 35% to everyone. But I do, I mean, I, I appreciate any of those models that will distribute some of the risk because it is an inherent sort of like speculative proposition. You show up and hope you sell work to cover the costs of doing business and the landlord or the person running the space they make money regardless right you know so yeah. they're like the house <laughs> the casino metaphor but it's nice to hear that future fair is doing something different like that
0: yeah and that leads me into the conversation of the two fairs that that I did go to see in addition to freeze during that week which was volta and the 1-54 contemporary african art fair and the thing about volta I think it's useful to just talk about their history a little bit because there's quite a lot of it there. I feel like they're the zombie fair that just like has died a million times or like has at least come very close to death, but like is still around for some reason that we can't quite figure out. And they were like, they were well known for doing the solo booth model. So like if you were going to, participate with them, you'd have to do a solo booth. And I think that's just worth paying attention to on some small level because it does tell you about the late like the level of creativity that goes into some of these fairs. Like I don't think that a solo booth is such a big distinction. And what we're talking about here is really just like these small shades of distinction that are really only visible to the vendors, and a few people who are paid to pay attention to this stuff. Nobody cares. I mean, maybe they do, but I think this was supposed to give them, it was supposed to make a better fare. And I actually never found that any of those moves made Volta a better fare. And at this point, it really is to. It really is, it really has gotten to such a point that, like, even the dealers are complaining about the fair not being that good. So, there was basically nothing worth discussing at the fair. I did want to mention that I met Michael Foley, who is a photography dealer who had like a reasonable program there. He was pretty much, it's like him and a couple other people, that was it. And I learned that he runs a Substack, And I think that subscription was like probably the most I got out of the fair because now I'm Mm -hmm. like tapped into photography news through him. So,
1: yeah, I, I totally agree that Volta is like the Friday, the 13th of art fairs. It definitely gets killed and keeps coming back. I think the difference in quality of Volta was probably its partnerships. So when it sort of got sort of acquired by Armory and was a branch of that, That's true. That they had a better selection pool of of galleries and probably better galleries were applying to it. It It was a nice break when you go through Armory to go see Volta. And generally you were seeing younger, sort of less established artists at Volta. So there was a lot of unevenness in the work. But you're right. I mean, a small booth is not the same thing as a full sort of gallery solo exhibition. And I think the other one of the problems with Volta though is the dealers can't hedge. It's like you put all of your eggs in one artist's basket and if it hits, it hits. If it doesn't, everyone well, is just sad face. Like actually
0: I, sh- I should like I should mention the most important part of this whole like this was the solo booth deal, whatever. This was the thing that made them distinctive. They got rid of that. So now it's oh. like so now it's just a shit show. Great. And, and there's like virtually no curation and it's in the old Dia building, like to make something look bad in that building, you really have to work. Like, I just don't know how they managed to make something look so unattractive. Like even just the fair layout itself was.
1: It's a tough one. I mean, that's on Volta, but the reason why it keeps returning from its, grave is that we know that there's just so much demand to be in art fairs that they will find people with the money willing to pay for a booth forever <laughs> as long as there's yeah. art. Volta <laughs> will probably stick around long past its like usefulness.
0: That, that already has happened. Yeah it's done. <laughs> it's like, in any event, I also went to the uh, one 54 contemporary art fair it had a lot more going for it it was housed inside this like majestic church so mm-hmm. this was something that i think like just from the get-go is kind of nice like i have all these like just beautiful pictures of even just the ceilings um there was also like it's the african contemporary the, the contemporary african art fair and i have to say that It had a lot of diversity, a lot more diversity, not just in race, but like material diversity. That was something we complained about at every single fair. This fair had like photography, woven tapestries, like painting, new media. It was a smaller fair. So in some ways, I think like, I don't, I guess I, I probably shouldn't say that it's easier, but it was like, it was, it's easier to see.
1: Yeah. It's manageable. You know, yeah. it's like human scale not collector class scale you know
0: <laughs> yeah so there was like a focus on figuration for sure mm-hmm. i think like there like 50 Goulburn, for example displayed a handmade abstracted patterned wall hanging by sienna giage and that and then bkhz gallery from johannesburg displayed a painted image of a family wearing militia wear with guns. And this was by an artist named Wonder Bowl. So a lot of times, like the names of the galleries, I'm completely unfamiliar with. There were a couple of blue chip galleries there, but a lot of times like the artists and the names of the galleries, I didn't know. So that's always fun to just like go in there and discover things. And yeah, that particular painting that I was interested in was like, part of a series that was made with the objective of highlighting inequalities during the height of lootings that took place in Durban due to political instigation. So there's like a history to some of the work and it was, you know, you go there and you learn something. So I thought it was, I was glad I went.
1: Yeah. And I mean, again, that points to this idea that if Nada and Freeze were marked by a lot of kind of blue chippy formalist kind of painting there's not room for that kind of material and genre-based diversity to like and all of the kind of histories and cultural perspectives that could be an fair like that so it's nice to hear that like the contemporary african art fair was actually a like a positive experience that like it's maybe not the fair format's fault completely it has a lot to do with the curation and the content as well
0: yeah So you had a couple of galleries that you saw in between the fairs that you thought were worth just uh, giving a, a nod to?
1: Yeah, because I mean, you know, I, as a creature of commercial art galleries, I still find that, you know, doing solo exhibitions in a gallery is like my preferred way of working. And that after going to, Nada, I felt like I needed to go see some shows in galleries just to kind of remind myself what maybe a different exhibition format looked like. So my friend uh, and artist, Jennifer Dalton, and I met in Tribeca to see some shows. And we started out, we kind of breezed through the Judith Linair show at PPOW. We are both not, painting is not our first impulse to like look at. And so we saw the Linair show and not a lot to say about it. Then we went over to JTT Gallery's new space on Broadway. And normally, I, I really like the shows at JTT Gallery. I always can expect something new and weird. And in this case, though, it was like a double bill of like terrible shows. The f- artist in the front gallery was Anna Sophie Berger. And it was sort of like a sculptural interpretation of Hito Steyrall's concept of the poor image. But like made with mannequins and just, you know, kind of, I don't know, really sort of kitschy and cheap materials. One of the center pieces of the show are like two ladders zip tied together. And that show was called Sin. And then following on that theme in the back was a kind of very edgelordy kind of like dime square show, a figurative painting by Sam McGinnis which is sort of like white America and the climate crisis uh, sort of as its main subject. And really the, the centerpiece of the show that I can't get out of my head, unfortunately, is a sort of sardonic portrait of Nancy Reagan. And so I don't know, the whole room had a kind of like evil vibe of bad intent, not like bad art, just this sort of gross sort of political positioning on McGuinness's part that like let me paint Republicans. That's an edgy thing to do, and I don't know. the whole The whole back room felt like if somebody made a painting out of an episode of the Red Scare podcast or something, just kind of gross. And so that the gallery trip did not start out on like a great note, seeing that double billing at JTT. But thankfully, we walked over to Broadway Gallery and saw Sky Hopkina's exhibit River Child. And this was just a really wonderful show. It had a beautiful two-channel video in the front with several large-scale photos of the landscape inscribed with handwritten text, really sort of like etched in by hand into these photos. But the star of the show for me was the film called Kicking the Clouds. And it was really a hypnotic, lushly shot, poetic film that includes audio tracks of the artist's grandmother learning her ancestral language framed by text captions and a soundtrack developed with his collaborator, Courtney Estalos. And like one of the captions about this work, which is dealing with indigenous culture and family histories on the land that they live. But the caption says, we don't remember what was memory, what was a memory and what was a dream. And that kind of summed up the experience of the exhibition. It was just sort of dreamlike, hypnotic, and it was, felt like a discovery. I was not familiar with Sky's work previously, and I, I really hope that these films and videos make their way into more venues. Really great. And we followed that up with Paul Sepoya's studio-based photographs at Portolami. And these were just really fascinating, and they really bring, like, surrealist concerns into the present through the artist's, like, framing and cropping and cutting of bodies in the space with mirrors and sort of physical objects and the postures and poses of the bodies together. So these were just these kind of, like, I walked in and was sort of disarmed because they were sort of, like, very formal at first, and it takes a little bit of time for the subjects and the figures and the propositions to kind of reveal themselves. So that was amazing. And then another standout really was Nora Torado's Govern Me Harder at 52 Walker Street. And these were like large scale text-based designs of like nonsensical utterances that kind of evoke the ticks and traits of like meme language that extend through the designs that the artist creates. So there are all these kind of warped designs where letters and characters are huge and small. And it's just a kind of wild design that like, the individual printed works were on walls that I would call like, it felt like a kind of psychedelic modernism. These sort of like weird, large, circular forms that kind of elongate and contract around the rest of the gallery and really play with the kind of sense of scale between the sort of smaller print works and then these huge wall installations. And one thing that was sort of novel too, when I went back to look up the show and just get some information, the show actually includes a really excellent reading list including like Judith Butler, Martha Rossler, Andrea Fraser, and Helen Molesworth. And like the books are available for checkout at the gallery, if you want to borrow an actual hard copy of the text. So I think just encountering three really strong shows out in the gallery world reminded me that like, yeah, they can be such a better viewing environment where you get like a full range of like an artist's vision and what they want to present. And there you can have a kind of discreet experience with the show before moving on to the next one, instead of just getting the kind of like super saturated art fair environment where a lot of things just kind of start to bleed together.
0: It's funny because uh, I, so I went to see a couple of things in the Tribeca region. So I went to the PPOW show and saw that same show. Um, and I saw the Mary Beth Edelson show at, at David mm-hmm. Lewis, but I ran out of time. So I wasn't able to see everything. So I wanted to see what you were talking about with the Paul Sapoya at Bordolomi and I can't get on the website because they have not updated their SSL certificates so like there's a giant like warning that just says that the <laughs>
1: that you page... just have to you have to click through that I
0: already and... I did oh. I am telling you I I'm did I'm just
1: so bummed about SSL certificates because unless you are selling things and taking people's information and their credit card info You don't really need an SSL certificate. And so for a lot of the hosting sites like GoDaddy, it's another way to just soak somebody for like anywhere from 25 to 100 bucks a year for this thing. You know, if you're doing e-commerce, please get one. But if you're not, I don't know.
0: I mean, you have to get one at this point, though, because Google will mark your your site as unsafe, and then you're fucked.
1: It's such um, a bummer. They shouldn't be. <laughs> I, I know you I pointed mean, that out to me when my website fell off, like Google search, and I went on a year long like odyssey to resolve that situation.
0: But actually, I mean, Squarespace doesn't need any advertising, but they do give you those certificates yeah. for free. So. Mm, yeah. Something more significant may be going on with Bordalami, though, because I, when you click through, you just get a 404 message that says that their page hasn't been found. So they seem to have some fairly significant web issues going on. So anyway, so artists, anybody who's feeling bad about their website, like not being quite up to date or whatever else, know that like it even happens to the Bordalamis of this world. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this came up just last night and I think it might be the subject of a much longer discussion for our next podcast, but Kevin Boyest posted what he called a barn burner on Twitter last night by Dean Kissick from Spike Magazine and the essay is titled The Downward Spiral. Taste figures and images. And so I was like, "Okay, Kevin, I'll play this game and oh, my through" And it's a kind of critical railing against a lot of things that, that have been much discussed over the last like 15 years in the art world, whether it was zombie formalism or zombie figuration. But Dean is taking his sort of critical assessment into the NFT space. But something, two things stuck out to me, basically inspired by our last conversation about the art fairs, right? Like I broke down my analysis of the art fairs between sort of good art and bad art because the bad art was memorable. But Dean takes that like a step further. He says, at the top of the market and in the biggest shows, there's not much very good and not much very bad, which is a shame because really bad art can be captivating, thrilling, fun to look at, can lead to great breakthroughs, but sweet, tasteful kitsch leads nowhere fast. And His definition of kitsch is probably different than what we sort of discussed earlier, Patty. It's not just the kind of Greenbergian nostalgia for the past or too much decoration, something like that. Kissick defines kitsch in this way, says, much of the art that makes up today's booming quote, ultra contemporary market is kitsch. It's an emptied out, backward looking remake of styles from the past, often the very recent past. And It's ultra-contemporary because it doesn't do anything new, but only refines already present historical and contemporary art into exceedingly sellable and tasteful styles. And that idea just sort of really resonated with me because so much of the artwork at the fairs, what were paintings, paintings in the styles of Picasso, Magritte, Matisse, just this kind of recycling of previously established genres, that extends from figuration to abstraction. And it's the fairs made that really clear. So reading Kissick's argument here really resonated, but I was really sympathetic to the idea of like, there needs to be space for bad art. Not intentionally bad edgelord art like Sam McGuinness's paintings, because his are competent, they're fine, but they're not... There's
0: also, I think there's a level of cynicism to them that I personally could just do without in this.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, this I mean, time. exactly. So I felt like that was at least another way of thinking about why we need to create space for things that are genuinely risky, that if they don't rely on remakes of kind of like previous styles, it, it's riskier and you can fail and you can make things that people don't even necessarily recognize yet as, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think not language just- language for it just to read the definition that the Oxford art dictionary has for kitsch so that we have like this sort of contrast or the Greenbergian version of that. They say that kitsch is art objects or designs considered to be in poor taste because of excessive garnish or sentimentality, but sometimes appreciated in an ironic or knowing way. And I think that like that, ironic or knowing way is like at this point completely out of vogue I mean maybe I'm I'm not right about that but like I know I'm kind of right about that but (laughs) no there's
1: cringe there's a lot of different ways that like Kit comes back as camp or it comes back as these sort of other where somebody says oh you think that's poor taste you think that's like John Waters is like I'd like a word
0: yeah but (laughs) campus, I think campus is different than like an ironic statement on something because I feel like there's a condescension involved with like, oh, hey, I'm setting up this kind of kitschy thing, but I know it, which is different than like a complete celebration of like the abject.
1: Right. I mean, the thing that I think about camp though is it's not necessarily ironic. It also becomes these sort of like appropriated and readapted for different purposes. And then it becomes a kind of coded language. If you get it, if you know it, you can understand it. And Yeah, but that's the same with
0: any language. I think, but it's
1: sometimes for different audiences that it's not for a mainstream audience or it's for a queer audience or it's, there's an intention behind the way that the language is appropriated and used that is resistant to dominant sort of interpretations of it. So that I guess I
0: uh, just was thinking about like horror movies, right, which I think have like mainstream appeal, but maybe they're like a little bit on the fringe, but there's like a complete like language
1: there to speak to that. uh, (laughs) I just started reading a book called My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones, a Native American author, and he opens the book with a quote by Carol J. Clover, who wrote, like my all time favorite critical analysis book. Um, it's called Men, Women in Chainsaws. And the quote he opens the book with is The slasher film lies by and large beyond the purview of the respectable. And that's like one of the freedoms of horror to explore things that would otherwise not sort of pass into mainstream um, cinema. And, and granted, I know horror is a sort of popular genre, but because of its genre status, it's not taken as seriously, and you can get into issues of gender and class and get movies like Driller Killer.
0: <laughs> I, I don't even know about Driller Killer. You know, Patty, I will, I'm going to gift
1: you my copy of Men, Women, and Chainsaws because it's just such a fantastic book. And seeing Stephen Graham Jones start the book off by quoting Clover, it's like maybe the second time I've seen her name in, in something that might be a kind of mainstream novel. Um, We're
0: gonna have to have a whole podcast on this, then, too.
1: <laughs> well, we absolutely have to because I don't know if you saw it, MoMA announced they're doing a hundred days of horror films, and they're going deep into my genre. If if I wasn't an artist, that would, that would be, a, be all I'd like, be doing—either <laughs> making films, writing films. But it is my other major sort of cultural consumption at this point.
0: In any event, turning the boat around mm. back to Kitsch, like. I think the thing that we were trying to set up was maybe not necessarily a contrast, but like a jumping off point between what we have traditionally considered kitsch and like what kitsch looks like today. So that we have kind of a lineage set up so that we understand like why these things look different and why we can still call them kitsch, even though they don't seem exactly the same because like, I think the thing that creates like a little bit of friction here is like the poor taste because of excessive garishness or sentimentality, like Uh, the dollar Uh, store items that you can find the, the cheap um, Tupperware and whatever else, like those are the things, yes, home sweet
1: home, what are those porcelain dolls, cottage paintings
0: on rocks, (laughs) yeah,
1: yes, I think one of the things that we discussed is that the idea that it's the sentimentality, which is a backwards looking sort of position that I think that's where Kisik is making this link, because in his essay, the article, he also cites this is coming out of critiques of first zombie formalism, then zombie figuration, and then a return to zombie formalism sort of making a comeback. And I think I remember reading an essay by Hal Foster where he was sort of taking on the idea of zombie formalism. And he said at the end of this piece that some art movements can only be world historical once. Like AbEx is kind of Mm. defining, when you define the terms of what a genre is, what an art movement is, it establishes what it is. And you can't repeat that. All you can do is... If you start to go too far into that style without bringing some sort of update or something contemporary to it, I, I think I explained it to you. It's sort of like watching punk move from its founding moments and as a style that connected to the politics and the attitude to like being watered all the way down to a hot topic store or like listening to a band like Blink One Eighty Two or something, right? I mean, they have a lot of things <laughs> popular, but it's it's only oh the look of the attitude or the movement and when it's distilled to a purely aesthetic form, that's where I think Kistik is making this argument that it becomes a kind of kitsch, even though it is in quote unquote, good taste of these art movements. It may not look like a little figurine, but in some ways it operates the same way. It's kind of dead. It's like, well, both. I think,
0: I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this talks about talk, speaks to the importance of originality, right? Which was something that i think was really valued when Clement Greenberg was putting together his definitions for things that he thought were really great and still feels relevant today even though i think we've had a good deal of questioning of that since we see the same things over and over again and we kind of need to or maybe we don't like i, I don't know i think it's sort of exhausting to see the same things over and over again too but like this is sort of the contemporary moment right where I think it's increasingly difficult to cut through the noise to find anything that feels original. And, and what we're doing, what we know does work is like recycling things that like quote unquote work. Like, so we're recycling Picasso, we're recycling surrealism and dataism and, and whatever else. And that's what we've got.
1: Yeah, and you couple it to things like the medium, like painting, which is very sellable. Again, it's like the, the analog NFT and the trad art world. If you want to buy and sell artwork, painting is going to be the preferred form. Where the po- Paul Sepoya show, elements of surrealism in that are still done through photography, which, as you pointed out, might have been the theme of independent, but was not as well represented, right? So part of the idea of like originality or novelty even if the work doesn't rise to the sort of genius level space of invention, like inventing a whole new field of sure, art, we do like some level of innovation or content or a reason for the work to kind of look the way it does, I think is really important because if it is just about the aesthetic or the decorative power or the way it makes somebody feel about a previous art historical movement it gets you dangerously into that sentimentality and You know, at some point, I mean, I don't know. I guess it also comes down to what do we think art should do? Should it be sort of transgressive and pushing boundaries and trying to sort of redefine what it is, as opposed to being a kind of set formula or a craft or a tradition that you just execute and put out there in the world for somebody else to appreciate? And I would also point out that this Kissick's article is moving through. Part of the argument that Jason Farrago made in the New York Times about a month ago, sort of lamenting the influence of the market, and then moves into a critique of NFT aesthetics, where we have NFT series of rocks that Kevin Boyist just wrote an essay about, which I've not read yet, but want to, because there's a similar thing to like pox piece, where the mass NFT piece, where people are just buying and selling like little circles or spheres. And that they're indistinguishable from each other. It's more about how many you have and if they, what they're, the value of them. I mean, it's like a perfect vehicle for just the rest of it the speculation and observing the rise and fall of value and feeling that sense of ownership.
0: I mean, there's something so meta about that. I'm not even sure if that's the right word because, like, if they're indistinguishable, that, like, in some ways, it's, there's a question about why it needs to be an NFT, right? Because like it's a form of currency and like with, I mean, Bitcoin, it doesn't matter which Bitcoin you have, like it matters how many you have. So you have these NFTs, which exist specifically because they can have a unique token and yet they're completely indistinguishable. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
1: I think this is going to be a great discussion for the next podcast too, to one, sort of tackle the idea that for me, NFTs are still largely a mechanism for distributing work, for buying and selling. It's an agreement that points to a thing. But there certainly are artists that are situating the work of on chain or engaging the point of transfer. At the same time, the idea of the NFT having an aesthetic, like what is the aesthetic of, of NFTs, is where the discussion is sort of moved on to. And so I think that would be a really great discussion in light sort of of Dean's sort of like barn burner here, which is really going after it, that like, that's why he starts talking about bad art and not like bad, bad painting, like just really bad with bad intentions and, a, and an awareness that he makes the point that like, there's a whole crop of artists who know what they're doing is really bad and they just don't care <laughs> you know, because there's so much money to be made and new audiences. So I'd love to pick it up on the next podcast.
0: All right. Well, you all know what we're doing for the next podcast. Uh, We will see you soon. Bye, everyone.
1: Bye.